come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house. Apple pie, shit. All of your sentences are punctuated by shit or fuck. (laughs) This fucking movie. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome back to Ghouls Only Cast. As always, this is Meg, and joining me again today is Connor. How are you, Connor? I'm doing all right. Excited to talk about Liquid Sky. (laughs) I've not been doing very well, and that's why this (laughs) has taken so long to come out. I mean, we are at like one year of all this fucking horrible, stupid shit, and like I think everyone is just experiencing like this horrible thing like oh god i just lost a year of my life yeah i can verify you have been working on this it's just been slow going but we're here we're recording we're We're, ready to go we're here i'm queer let's get (laughs) used to it all right today we are talking about liquid sky so this is our second installment in the broken windows trilogy following susan seidelman's smithereens and preceding larry cohen's perfect strangers larry cohen the stuff yes yeah uh q the winged serpent Mm -hmm. so if you want to hear more about why we chose to specifically call this the broken windows trilogy i suggest you listen to my episode on smithereens but in short this movie is set in nyc before the broken windows theory of social sciences was implemented therefore you get to see an unsanitized version of the same few neighborhoods throughout these three movies and they are totally unrelated, but they share similar actors and scenery. So no actors in this movie are from Smithereens, but in Perfect Strangers, we're going to have people from Smithereens and Liquid Sky. Mm-hmm. So Liquid Sky debuted in 1982, the same year as Smithereens, to a surprisingly large amount of praise from critics. It played nonstop in festivals and in small theaters for four years, making a sizable profit of almost $2 million against its $500,000 budget. I was actually pretty surprised to hear that. Yeah. Especially since, you know, Smithereens, of course, is a is a yeah, Criterion Collection movie. You know, it went to Cannes. So we knew that one had gotten some amount of praise at the time. But this one, like, it's from Vinegar, Vinegar Syndrome, which we love. But yeah. it's not, they're not known for bringing out, like, you know, critical darling movies. Yeah, you uh, get a lot of porn <laughs> with exactly. Vinegar Syndrome. But yeah, it, it apparently did very well at the time. Mm-hmm. It has a very unique style and voice, and it's it has a lot of unique fashion and music that sets it apart from pretty much all other movies, at least that I've seen up until this point. It's really like a one-of-a-kind sort of movie, and I absolutely fucking hated it the first time I saw it. Yeah, you and me were in that same boat. We we got this movie kind of sight unseen. Do you want to go into like how we got into this movie? How yeah. We friend- okay, so we were at Crypticon in Seattle. Which- Crypticon is our horror convention. Yeah, and there was a Vinegar Syndrome booth there. Yeah. So we stopped by there and we're buying Blu-rays. And I think it got to a point where we were buying so many that they were just going to throw in one for free. Yeah. So we saw Liquid Sky there. It sounded kind of interesting. We'll get into the plot later, but essentially it's like a B-movie plot. So it sounded like it could be really, yeah. really fun to watch. And we... the uh, guy who was selling it to it, he was like, this movie, there is a point during it where you go, okay, this is fucking incredible. So it's like, all right, I yeah. need to see this point, apparently. Yeah. And... We watch it, and the first time we watch it, we are just, like, 
very disappointed by it. I remember being very disappointed. Dumbfounded by it yeah. because the plot is like a is really like a B movie sort of thing where you 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 really expect something other than what you get. Yeah, you expect kind of schlocky 1980s B movie, you know, over the top, uh, maybe some gore effects, that it, kind of stuff. It is very over the top. But the thing is, is that everyone takes it so seriously while they're doing it. Like everyone involved in this movie was like, I am creating art yeah it is a very you know artsy movie both in mm-hmm. good bad way in the bad ways you know, yeah. right and so yeah the first time you're coming up, off from watching it you're thinking that was weird and kind of pretentious after i saw it for the first time the thing that it reminded me of was there is a movie that i really really love called murder party mm-hmm. and it's about all these art school d-bags that all get together on halloween and they send out this anonymous note right. for for one person to come to this party and whoever shows up they'll kill them and then they'll rule the art scene and there is <laughs> yeah. a girl in it who's dressed like pris from blade runner mm-hmm. And uh, she's showing one of the guys her student video that she was working on. And it's her crying in a bathtub and having hot dogs thrown at her. (laughs) And while she's watching it, she goes, oh, it's so good. Yeah. And I really felt like that's what Liquid Sky was like. Yeah. That was our first impression. But then we wouldn't stop talking about it. it. We would just be hanging out and talking. And all of a sudden, we'd just be talking about Liquid Sky and like, things that didn't stick with us at the moment when we were watching it yeah. suddenly we just keep talking about them it yeah. kept coming up and before you know it we watched it again yeah and then we watched it again and we watched it again and now we just legitimately love this movie oh yeah this movie is fucking great i mean it really did seem pretentious the first time we watched it i mean like everyone in this movie acts like they are so incredibly hot and they mm-hmm. know that they're hot like particularly Anne carlisle the lead yeah. like i when i first watched it, i was like what an annoying bitch like it was, just, <laughs> it was probably just some like internalized misogyny or something but it's just like i don't like her she's visually noisy <laughs> We'll get into it a little bit more, but between the visuals and the audio and stuff, there's a lot of things that are very off-putting the first time you watch yeah, this. Yeah, and the acting style in the movie is very interesting as well because I feel like everyone has this lilt to their voice where everyone acts like a personified like house cat. Yes. Like that... everyone kind of just talks like this. Yeah, there is a certain cadence to the way everything is said. And again, as we've looked more into this movie, we've figured yeah. out why that is. But I, with the first time you're watching that, you're just like... What world do we these people live in where yeah. everyone talks and looks like this, you know? And everyone talks and looks like this because they were all students of this acting teacher <laughs> who's in the fucking movie. Playing an acting teacher. So just to get a little bit more into the backstory for this, so Liquid Sky is actually like the success story that the people who made Troll 2 wanted because it's almost made of the same exact framework. So the director, the writer, producer, and the director of photography, three people, two of which were married, coming from another country where English is not their first language, making an off-the-wall movie, but where Troll 2 was immediately forgotten and then revived via making fun of how ridiculous it is, Liquid Sky was a breakout success in the indie filmmaking market and has had a buzzing cult following ever since then and has influenced fashion, set design, and has gone on to inspire some other movies. Yeah, though oddly in that way, it's now less well-known than Troll 2 is. Yeah, 
because we had never heard of Liquid Sky before. Right. It, Troll 2 has become kind of like your go-to bad movie, yeah. right? There's a whole documentary, Best Worst Movie, about it. So it's gotten a lot of notoriety. Mm-hmm. To the point of where, you know, if somebody... If someone wants a recommendation for, like, a bad movie to watch, I won't even try suggesting Troll 2 at this oh, yeah. point. I it's do... just too, too well. Yeah, I um, don't even really... Uh suggest the room anymore either yeah like those everything has just become really too popular yeah for and, bad and, for the bad movies <laughs> and too many of the aspects of it are too well known at this point it yeah of, it loses its value the if you're watching it and you already know what you're going into yeah it's like a meme dies when it's exactly. in a, when it's in a wendy's commercial <laughs> exactly so to get into even you know what the hell Liquid Sky even is at this point, we really need to explain who Slava Sukerman and Nina Karova are. So Slava Sukerman was born in Moscow in 1940 and showed an early talent for filmmaking, getting first prize in the Moscow All Union Festival of Amateur Films when he was just 21 years old. And Nina Karova also showed a sizable passion for media, starting uh, with stage acting at the age of six, and then from the ages of 16 to 19, growing from a news writer to an assistant director to a documentarian filmmaker for a TV news station in her home of Siberia. She then went on to attend the Soviet National Film Institute and then went to the Moscow Institute of Culture, and then somewhere along the way, she met Slava, and they got married. And this is the sweetest thing in the world to me because they had such similar passions and that they just began collaborating together immediately. Now, obviously, at a certain point, being a filmmaker in Soviet Russia isn't very easy. Yeah, exactly. So in 1973, they immigrated to Israel and began making documentaries together. One of their films, Russians in Jerusalem, won the first place in the Hollywood International Festival of TV Films, which sounds made up, but I guess it exists. (laughs) Sure, why not? Slava and Nina wanted to move upward from there, and they saw America as the next logical step. So they wanted to move to America, they wanted to integrate perfectly, and they wanted to be as American as possible. Like, Slava even said he never, ever wanted to go back to Russia again, because as a career move, it would be just kind of stupid because the Iron Curtain was so stifling to creativity. Mm -hmm. You aren't going to make it in the film world if you're stuck in Soviet Russia in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, what is the film world there? Just like Soviet propaganda and and, uh, maybe some documentaries, but everything's government approved and controlled? Crocodile Gina? Crocodile Gina, what's that? It's a little stop motion. Oh. So being well-versed in documentary filmmaking already, Slava decided that for their next foreseeable projects, they should just make feature films. And he knew how to shoot on a low budget, being a documentarian. If you want to make movies on a low budget, making a documentary is usually the easiest one to do. Sometimes the only way. Yeah. Just because of all the work that goes into making a movie. Absolutely. And Slava figured that the best place to make the movies that he wanted to make personally was in New York City. So Slava and Nina immigrated there in 1976. They got some grant money to make a sci-fi film. It was going to be called Sweet 16. They wrote a role for Andy Warhol, who agreed to play in their movie. One of the things I've loved about learning more about like New York in this time 
is how easy it apparently was just to like talk to Andy Warhol yeah to like bump up to him someplace and just like if he was the slightest bit interested in you you could just kind of get into that circle oh yeah I mean it really seems like he was not nearly as exclusive as he's been made out to be like post-mortem yeah. and everything and I mean there's been a lot of movies made of people's like life histories that they met Andy Warhol and that ruined their life like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like it was great for a while because when Andy Warhol's paying attention to you, you think you're, that you're the greatest thing in the world. And then he just kind of moves onward because he doesn't give a shit like that. Yeah. Like that happened to Edie Sedgwick. Mm-hmm. It happened to uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like the other side of, like, one, it was really easy to, like, get an intro to him. And people would think, like, oh, I've made it because now Andy knows who I am. And then, like, he just kind of moves on. That's what yeah. he does. Like, that's because it's so easy to meet him. He's meeting new people all the time. And he's just kind of, like, constantly shifting the people in his orbit. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is one of the things that I think is so funny about um, when you hear about when Andy met Divine. Mm-hmm. And how Andy Warhol walked up to Divine and said, oh, Divine, I've been dying to meet you. And then just walked away. <laughs> yeah. And didn't talk to him again. <laughs> yeah. See, someone other than Divine might have been like, okay, I better give Andy Warhol all my money. Divine- which happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Divine knew better. Yes. Just, I know this is like really diverting, but the I Am Divine documentary is so fucking good. Oh, yeah. That's a great documentary. I mean, I know that, like, I just, I love Divine mm. and I love the idea of opening up your fridge and just putting a chair in front of it so that you have shelves to eat from and you're being cooled by the right. fridge. Like, that's it's... actually, that's the fucking future. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes the greatest inventions are just finding something that already exists and just finding a new use for it. Incredible. Right? Love it. So they were going to make this sci-fi movie called Sweet 16. Andy Warhol was going to be in it. And Klaus Kinski <laughs> agreed to play the lead in this movie. Uh okay let's leave it at that you know we, we talked about klaus a bit oh in our we cat have people. yeah and there's a lot to say about him i will just say i would love to know more about this movie and what could have been oh yeah this is like the other half of hodorowski's dune right like yeah this sci-fi movie by the people who made liquid sky with andy warhol and klaus kinski mm-hmm Hodorowski's Dune also had Andy Warhol, so there's a connection. Yeah. See, he was not exclusive. (laughs) Exactly. If you had a botched (laughs) idea for a sci-fi film, Andy Warhol was probably in it. (laughs) And aside from Andy Warhol and Klaus Kinski, he wanted to uh, cast actors in other roles that were local to NYC and would be a cross-section of just the type of cool, hip people that you would see on the streets that lived there. And while at a party, Slava and Nina met a casting director that ran with the Warhol crowd and the new wave scene that was starting to kick off. And he was also an acting teacher and had several students. And this guy's name was Bob Brady, who basically, as we said, plays himself in Mm -hmm. the film. Unfortunately, they were unable to raise the funds necessary to put Sweet 16 into production, but in that time, Slava and Nina had become very good friends with Bob Brady and several of his students. So Slava then started writing a new script for a new film that would only really involve roles for their friends, not big names like Andy Warhol or Klaus Kinski that would cost them more money. Mm And casting a low-budget film was, in Slava's words, difficult to find the right actors for the roles. So instead, they pretty much already had this Little Caesars hot and ready group of actors in (laughs) mind. Because, you know, when you go to cast a movie, you have to set out all these, like, you have to put out flyers or you have to contact offices. You have to sit through hours and hours of interviews. And the person you might pick might end up 
cutting off your foot one day, as the movie Audition taught us about <laughs> the whole interview process for auditioning actors. So yeah, this way this is way easier, right? You you already have your group of people who you know are absolutely going to be in the movie, and you just write roles for them. And many of these actors essentially got to play themselves because as Slava wrote the movie, he had these people in mind already and wanted them to be like them. And real parts of normal conversations that he had had with these people were incorporated into the script. And it was really special for these acting students who mostly had no credits to their name to have parts written specially for them in a feature film. Yeah. And I think that also kind of lends some authenticity to it, which is weird to say mm -hmm. about this movie because it's so weird. But I guess what we can take away from it was early 80s new wave scene inside New York City it was a weird scene. Yeah. Everyone thought that they were really part of something special. And they were, but you can be a dick about it too. <laughs> but, you know... Having all these people on hand already saved a shitload of money on casting and time and a lot of the usual tension was done away with by the fact that all these people already knew each other. Mm -hmm. So you don't have these like new big personalities clashing with each other. Right. Like everyone was already friends, everyone knew each other and everyone had already acted with each other in class. They knew how to work with each other. Right. Because I've never been in acting classes or anything, but if you watch the uh, making of for this movie, they recorded like all of their uh, like practices together. Yeah, and they stuff. did lots of rehearsals together. Like yeah, that. they recorded it on beta mm -hmm. just so they could go back and watch it and see like, okay, this is what you're what you because ultimately what Slava wanted to do with these rehearsals and everything was have them get used to a camera being around them because mm -hmm. a lot of acting classes, you know, they don't record. Right. That sort of thing. So you have actors, they're used to acting and everything, maybe for the stage or whatever, but you start putting a camera in their face and they don't know what to do. Right. And Slava wanted to make a highly stylized film that married elements of realism and extreme theatricality. And the script began as a story of a traditional Hollywood Cinderella looking for her Prince Charming. And there's aliens mm -hmm. somewhere in there. There's aliens. And the new wave style of the time was ideal for the look that he wanted to cultivate for the film. And their friend and Bob Brady's student, who was already entrenched in that subculture, was Anne Carlyle. She was an actress, writer, a visual arts student, and a new wave model at clubs. She saw the very way that she lived as a creative act. Yeah, she's definitely a artist to the core mm -hmm. is, i guess the best way to describe oh, yeah. her like she even said herself that she felt like she was living a performance art piece with the way she behaved and the mm -hmm. way she wore her makeup and her clothing and she wanted to just make everything a creative outlet for herself and i think that's kind of the life i wish i would have had when i was <laughs> like college aged but i was too busy being sad and laying in bed and smoking pot scrolling through tumblr all fucking day long <laughs> I mean, Anne fully admits that she was a bit wild and that at the clubs they were all in the mindset that they were doing something totally new and worthwhile with everything that they were doing. Yeah, we're not just partying, we're changing the world. Yeah, I mean, what they were doing, she never really goes into it in the interview that I watched, but it was mainly wearing clothes, acting very cool, and doing drugs while you do it. Mm-hmm. She was in the proto-proto club kid scene before it exploded and eventually curdled under the watchful, glittery eye of people like Michael Alleg. Mm -hmm. 
who is out of prison now. Oh, boy. Yeah. I watched a thing about him, and his whole thing is just like, I don't know how to use a phone. <laughs> and just, like, seeing new stuff and going, what the fuck is this? Yeah. I've been locked away since I murdered somebody. I don't know what a phone is anymore. So sad yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, this is 1982, so this was pre-AIDS, basically. Yeah. And it was still around, obviously, but it wasn't widely talked about or known by everyone. I mean, the first known case of AIDS was mid-1981 in the United States, and a dedicated outpatient clinic wasn't created until 83. And they didn't even find the cause of AIDS until 84. So the scene in which Liquid Sky was born from was in this limbo that was way more lax with more open drug use and less sexual boundaries between people. And like Susan Seidelman and Susan Berman mentioned on different occasions, Anne also confirmed that in the early 80s, NYC was way more dangerous. And although she was a nightclub fixture and model, she would often find herself having to run from club to club on these massive platform shoes. And on one occasion, even falling off of her shoes and breaking her ankles. It's the price you pay for art. (laughs) As my aunt used to always say when she would be doing my hair and yanking it back so hard that my scalp would almost bleed. It takes pain to be beautiful. (laughs) So outside of club life, Anne felt drawn to acting more and more around the time that Liquid Sky was being made because she was enrolled in painting classes at NYU, just like Susan Berman and Brad Wren. When have they ever met? Well, she definitely met Brad Wren. That's true. (laughs) So, you know, she was taking painting classes at NYU, and the big trend at that time was minimalism. So she obviously felt very uninspired and not fulfilled by what her teachers were assigning. And that is something that I fucking hate about art school is that, you know, a lot of the time you're being taught about what the instructor likes rather than being taught like real technique and forming your own style and interests. I mean, you and I were both in art school. Mm -hmm. I'm an art school dropout. You're an art school minor. Yes. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's definitely like whatever the instructor is really into at the time, mm-hmm. that's exactly what you're going to do. Now, I'm assuming some of her classmates were like, yeah, minimalism, less work for me to do. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if you're not into whatever particular style of art your instructor is into, not only are you not interested in doing it, but like they're grading you based off of their own personal interests. It's oh, totally yeah. subjective. Absolutely. I mean, when I was taking a 3D class, I had this instructor who was obsessed with like post-minimalist sculpture like found art yeah post-minimalist and... sculpture sculpture means i found something and i'm gonna put it into a pile and that makes it art yeah i i remember him showing us his work and one of his things was um at the, you know our, our at iu they yeah. had a uh, they had an art gallery yeah he had a regular open sign that you put in cafes and he put it on the uh mm-hmm. At the front of the art gallery, and no one knew that, and he was like, that's the thing. And it's like, no, 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 no. You just think the art, the the gallery's open, but that's actually an art piece. And the other one is that he took, like, a tire and Mm -hmm. put it in a corner. Yeah. And the thing was, is I remember, like, our final thing that we had to do is I made a sculpture about how I thought that post-minimalism was trash. (laughs) Like, I made, like, this whole piece, and the whole meaning behind it was, I think this is stupid. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I took a bunch of jewelry and just put a bunch of slime all over it yeah. and put like a uh, like an art manual on top of it. Mm-hmm. And like he gave me a look during it and he was like, huh. And then I got an A+. <laughs> he loved it. Yeah. 
And didn't you have like a weird thing with like your painting professor? Oh yeah, I I took an oil painting class, and you know we had to buy a bunch of supplies for it, including a bunch of brushes and that kind of stuff. Like from day one in that class, then uh, our teacher was just like, "We are using the palette knife for all of our paintings. Never touching a brush, just palette knives. That's all I want to see is palette knives." That's fucking nuts because that is like the worst thing because you are just getting graded by what they want and what yeah. they like and it's it's such bullshit and I <laughs> fucking hate it and you know you just you get these people who are so up their own ass about their art and everything and it's just like you are 20 calm the fuck <laughs> down you know like, yeah god damn like I really feel like that movie um I think it's based on like a Daniel Klaus art school confidential yeah, yeah. art school confidential there's parts of that that it gets so right it's <laughs> ridiculous mm-hmm. especially the murder especially the murder but you know just like the uh the narc oh, yeah, the, yeah. like the undercover cop and he's making like these really simplistic things and they're like wow this is great uh-huh. it has a sense of yearning to yeah. it yeah He's a real arts outsider artist. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, okay, before we go into too much of a tirade about how much we hate art school, <laughs> I mean, some of it was fun. Sure. But, um, you know, after Anne started getting more and more into the new wave club scene, she wrote and starred in a short film called Fish, and she met Nina around this time who had written a script that was a comedy wherein a woman could not reach an orgasm. Like, that was the main crux of it. A woman, she can't get it up. Mm-hmm. Nina wanted a second opinion on her English and get some help editing the script and making it sound more fluently English, particularly like a American vernacular. This is, again, drawing the comparison between this movie and Troll 2. Shows you the difference in caliber of, of the creators here. Because famously, the people behind Troll 2 fought tooth and nail anytime someone tried to correct their broken English. Yeah. Like, no, this is this is correct. This like, is no, how American not. teenagers speak, I know, as a 40-year-old Italian man. <laughs> <laughs> and since they were pals and Anne really liked Nina's idea, she was happy to help out. But it turned out to be such an intensive endeavor that Anne moved into Nina and Slava's loft with them to work more efficiently. And not to mention that Anne was just a totally broke college student. And hearing the conversations about Nina's script gave Slava the idea to blend this plot element in with the movie that he was still writing, the one about the Hollywood princess and the vague alien presence, as well as pieces of Anne's real life story. Because Anne felt like she didn't have much of a life anyway, so she was perfectly comfortable and happy to give tidbits of her life to build the story of Margaret, the character that she would eventually play. She felt like this whole thing fulfilled her creative ambition that she wasn't getting in school and at the clubs. Mm -hmm. Like, there is a lot of Anne's real life in the movie to the point where it doesn't really seem necessary to, like, do a deep dive about who she really is like we normally do. Mm -hmm. Um, There's little speeches in the film that talk about her upbringing in Connecticut and even the advent of the character Jimmy is an amalgamation of the fact that the original actor who was supposed to play Jimmy never showed up and Anne was sometimes dressed as a boy as a child and that at least on one occasion she went clubbing with friends in drag and everyone at the club thought she was a man and was hitting on her. Mm-hmm. One little interesting thing is that a guy named Jeff Most was the body double for Jimmy. He went on to be a producer for all the Crow movies in the TV series. I love how when you look into movies like this, there's always at least one person who has like this weird career after this that Mm -hmm. like went on to do something that's like totally out of left field. Yeah. 
And then after Liquid Sky, though, Anne did some more acting, including starring in the next film I'm going to be talking about, Perfect Strangers. She went on to become a creative art therapist for a large array of individuals across many different backgrounds, doing, you know, really valuable work. And you can actually buy her art online, too, like her ceramics and everything. I think that's pretty cool. I kind of want to get one. Oh, yeah, I think we're going to. It's very um, experimental. Yes, but you do love ceramics, so I think... I think I have to. I think you're going to have to. I do love ceramics, but it is like she says it's a platter. I guess it's a platter. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it has the essence of a platter. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. And then a few years after Liquid Sky came out, um, Anne wrote the novelization of the film, which I own a first edition copy of. I don't know if it's ever been reprinted, but I have <laughs> Yeah, a it copy. might be the only edition copy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she changed quite a few things in it. Like... Yeah, I remember you telling me that. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. I'm still treating the movie as the real canon of the story here but yeah i mean it is worth noting you know not only she's the star of the movie as you said she helped write the movie so the fact that she wrote this novel and changed some things is is interesting yeah it's you know she creates an entirely different interpretation of some of the events in, in the story it's been a while since i've actually read it but it's like the alien in the movie isn't real Mm -hmm. that it is a like it's never outright said but it seems like the alien is a uh, figment of her imagination because she absolutely hates everything that's happening to her because spoiler alert in this uh margaret her character gets raped like all the fucking time that's true in the movie and the book it's right. true in the movie. But you said in the book, the aliens turn out not to be real. The aliens aren't real, and it's just her way of like trying to like mentally get back at them, right? Like imagining that there's an alien that's killing these people right. because they're it's hurting like her. When a character in a movie or something has like the fantasy sequence where they go on a killing spree or something yeah, like that. Exactly, yeah. it's kind of like that. But you know, the the book is written very much like you would expect the novelization of Liquid Sky to be. And just as a treat, since it's not widely available, mm-hmm. and, you know, fuck it, don't care, uh, I'm going to read a little bit to you. And, and if you're listening, Megan is available to read for the Audible edition of this book. If you want someone that has a weird twang to their voice and f- fucking vocal fry, <laughs> and please know, Anne is not going to listen to this. You never know. You never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Chapter one. Oh, God, that sounds horrible. My voice is all fucked up. <clears throat> as long as she could remember, she had always had the best hair. Everyone else in her family had thin, dribbly hair. But before she dropped out of college, the boys called her that girl with the hair. It was thick and curly, and there was a lot of it. Sometimes it had been overwhelming. She couldn't control it. Her mother used to say, you're so lucky, and poke at her curls, fluffing the ringlets and sighing as though the hair wasn't attached to Margaret's head. She never knew if she was pretty or not. People said she was. She couldn't see it, but she knew her hair looked good. Men liked it. When they were fucking her from behind, she would swing it around. They liked that. Funny how she always thought of them as they. They all seemed like one big collective man. But now it was Adrian, and Adrian was a she, not one of them. Not that Adrian treated her so different from them. She didn't. But when Adrian gave her the once-over with her approving nod, Margaret felt beautiful. 
With the men, she felt good, powerful sometimes, because she knew what to do. She lost herself in what she knew they liked. But it was only Adrian who made her feel numb. She would get paralyzed, kind of, and not be able to think of anything. And then, if Adrian kept paying attention to her, she would feel a warm, oozy glow all over. It was sexy. Sometimes it made her sick to her stomach. But no matter how mean Adrian was acting, Margaret couldn't do anything against it. It seemed like Adrian was the only person who really saw her. When Margaret was first with Adrian, the idea of it really freaked her out, especially after that redhead had come on to her. No female had ever done that to Margaret before. The redhead had come up to her on the street and said, You're hot, baby, and Margaret was sure that it showed. People could see that she had had sex with a woman. She had always been artistic. People treated her different, now that she was a lesbian, too, forever cursed. Then Margaret thought, that's life. You've always been a freak. Now it's out in the open. You'd better get used to it. Anyway, maybe the redhead had reacted that way because of her hair. Her hair gave her away. As she looked back over her life, Margaret felt her past had been one big doubt. After she did something, she would worry. How it went, who thought what, why it turned out the way it did, but mostly she agonized over what she should have done. The only time she could remember being right, feeling like she was making a real great move, was when she chopped off her hair. She cried, and everyone gave her a hard time about it, but it was worth it. It was worth it for that one moment. She knew, at that moment, without a doubt, that she had done the right thing. After all, it was her hair, and that felt better than anything ever. Not that she hadn't had orgasms before, but it only happened when she was on top in the rare case when the guy would relinquish his position. It had never seemed worth upsetting the apple cart for then. Anyway, they were happier if you faked it. They always said that they would hate it if a girl faked it. But what's to hate if they couldn't tell the difference? She had been every man's fantasy girl. She had been winning at the deception game. The ease of it had frightened her. That's why she had cut her hair. There would be no more lies, no more faking it. She wouldn't be sorry anymore, no matter whether they liked it or not. And that's why Adrian was so mad. Because Margaret wouldn't fake it, not even for Adrian. Adrian had fucked her really hard for two days and rolled off her, exhausted. Then Margaret had climbed on top of her and had had an orgasm. Adrian had yelled, it's not true, you're a liar. And then she had tried to pull her hair, but there wasn't much of it left to pull. Anyway, that's why Adrian hated her. And everyone else was upset about her hair, too. If you change something for yourself, even if they're supposed to love you, people always get you back. They punish you for it. Well, fuck it. Fuck them. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. Yes. So, yeah, that that's kind of a taste of Liquid Sky, where I feel like right then it's like, yeah, we're talking about Margaret, but I think that's Anne. Yeah. Definitely a lot of herself in this character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's, going back to the movie, it's a pretty fucking unusual film as far as how many layers of factoids that you can layer in about the people, the fashion, the music, and the set design. So I think for this episode, we're just going to pepper them in as we go. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we'll just be sitting here saying, fun fact, fun fact, (laughs) like for an hour and not even getting into the plot. So let's just get into the plot at this point and go from there. So strap in and strap on for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) This is Liquid Sky.
So right off the bat, the music hits you like a fucking truck. And I feel like if we're going to talk about this movie, we need to get the music out of the way. Yeah, it is one of the most memorable and jarring things about this movie. I love it and I hate it at the same time. Yes. So uh, Slava essentially wanted to make like science fiction circus music that was electronic. (laughs) Uh, You know, I had never caught that before until we watched that interview with him. In the moment he said circus, it was just like, it makes sense. Uh, I get it. I know what you're going Mm -hmm. for now. (laughs) Absolutely. Slava actually chose how he wanted the music similar to how David Lynch did with uh, Angelo Badalamenti for Twin Peaks, where he's just like, okay, I want it like this. This is happening. And it goes, yeah, he had some way of communicating as a non-musician. He was somehow able to communicate exactly what he was looking for. Mm -hmm. David Lynch does make music, though. Yes. But in Slava's case. Yeah. The funny part about this is that the music was not edited at all. Mm -hmm. So the music was made by two people. There was Clive Smith and Brenda Hutchinson. Brenda Hutchinson was not really feeling it as much as Clive Smith was. So he mainly took on like the, the bulk of the work. And, you know, he just had to go off of nothing because Slava didn't show him any part of the movie. So the way that it worked was that, okay, all the music is made with a uh, Fairlight CMI, which was the world's first digital sampling synthesizer. So with this thing, the synthesizer, sounds could be recorded through a microphone and then fed into its computer and then played back at different pitches on a keyboard, Mm -hmm. which was fairly new at the time. Yeah, I mean, this is very early in that kind of electronic, especially digital music scene. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why Slava didn't show him any of the movie, and that's because originally Slava got a hold of Brian Eno and sat him down to <laughs> to see some of the movies. Like, I want you to make music for my movie. Here's uh, some of my movie. And after he put it on, like halfway through, Brian Eno just got up and left. <laughs> He's a busy man. Didn't say a fucking word, just got up and left. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one reason why Slava didn't show any yeah. part of the movie. Because the thing was is that Clive Smith and Brenda Hutchinson were working the late shift at the Manhattan Public Access Synthesizer Studio. And Slava just bursts in. He's like, I have a movie idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> Real quick, I just want to say, just trying to think of this movie and how weird it is just off the bat. Imagine trying to sit through this movie without any music. And that's like what Brian Eno had to do. Yeah. You could absolutely see how he would walk out of there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because the music, as strange and jarring as it is, is like a character yeah. in the movie. It, it, it's like constant and it's going at you pretty hard in this movie, right? It's not just background sound. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of scenes where it's predominantly the music. It starts off with the uh, soundtrack playing and we get interiors of Margaret's apartment and it starts off with this life mask of her, mm-hmm. which they never say that it's her life mask, but it's obviously her. Right. And it's kind of unusual. You see her apartment from several angles, including from a window very, very far away, which mm-hmm. comes yep, into play up. later. 
So the building that Anne lived in, which was this exact apartment that is Margaret's apartment. Once again, the difference between Anne and uh, Margaret is very... Uh, like, like a name. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. They're pretty much the same person. But the building was has been since torn down, mm-hmm. of course. I mean, it kind of looked like shit during yeah. this movie. But there is a subway stop directly under where the foundation of the building was today. Yes. So you can't go and see Margaret's apartment, but you can stand underneath mm-hmm. where it once was. And uh, one thing to note about this apartment is, you know, it was a penthouse apartment. had a rooftop deck that looked out straight to the Empire State Building. So there's lots of great scenes in this movie where the Empire State Building is just right there in the background, kind of, you know, uh, always in sight. Yeah, the apartment is kind of shabby, but... It- it has it it's almost like prime real estate you that's probably exactly why they tore it down they probably tore it down and built nicer apartments there to Very sell likely. to rich people to look <laughs> at the empire state building yeah but we get cuts back and forth between sweeps of this apartment and then people dancing sloppily in a club like this is one of the first instances you get of like oh yeah this guy made this music without having any idea what was going on in this movie because like these people are trying they, you can tell they're just dancing to something else entirely oh yeah it does not match at all it does not match at all and you know you're getting one song for the apartment and then it switches to another song in the club and they don't mesh at oh, all yeah. like they, they're they couldn't be more different. Yeah, it's very jarring because it keeps cutting back and forth between the two. Yeah, but, you know, going to Margaret's apartment, it is covered in neon signs advertising, mm-hmm. like, toys and games, aquariums, that sort of thing. She has mirrors absolutely everywhere. There's even a tree that is covered in shards of mirror that have been hot glued yeah. to it. And there's bright tapestries everywhere. And then suddenly there's this UFO that looks like two dinner plates with a glow stick necklace like <laughs> looped between it that lands on the apartment's roof. It's worth noting when we say UFO here that looks like two dinner plates. It's about the size of two dinner plates. This is a very <laughs> small UFO. Yeah. I do love a character who is studying the aliens later does say it's about the size of a dinner plate. Right. There like it is a these aliens are clearly very small because it is a tiny UFO that lands on the roof. Well, um, he says later that they don't even have bodies. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, we'll get into that. But just worth noting, when you're visualizing this UFO landing on this rooftop, it's it's like a frisbee landed on the roof. Exactly. And there are these weird psychedelic effects that represent the aliens. So Slava did all the special effects with Yuri Naiman, the director of photography. Uh, They combined forces to use what I could only tell was called a new technology at the time (laughs) and it created these like psychedelic colorscapes that are representational of alien vision it's like a technology that was developed and used apparently by nasa for something yeah it's really hard to describe what the visuals look like here yeah and slava explains it in one of his interviews but the thing about slava is that even after living in the united states for like 50 years his accent is so he's a very thick thick russian accent yeah sometimes hard to understand yeah so a little bit about yuri Naiman, really quick the director of photography is that he was also a russian immigrant that went to israel and then went to new york city Mm -hmm. like that was like that's an interesting trajectory for three people to make he started cinematography when he was 14 and was considered a genius at an amateur children's filmmaking group where slava met him 
and he made six films before he immigrated. Just to get back to the movie, you see that this alien is viewing the inside of the apartment via a mirror that sits on the balcony, which we watched this movie like three times and we had no... Never noticed that. Yeah, I think you're kind of like so assaulted with like the things that you're seeing that you don't really catch yeah. on, but they do like describe like how the alien sees into the apartment. It's frankly too subtle. And it's also like of all the things in the movie, I never once question, wait, how do these aliens know what's going on in the apartment? Yeah. Because they have, like, predator vision. Yeah. Almost. Where everything is just this huge wash of, of, like, UV colors. Yeah. And then at one point, it notices the life mask of Margaret and seems to try to extract something from it via, like, these psychedelic swells of color that turn into this orb. And then, mm-hmm. the like, the music, like, makes this, like, down, down, down. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like some sort of honing thing that's going on yeah right? like like it sees the mask and it's like i want that right which you know you think at first like oh it's because it thinks that there's a human yeah right there but no yeah we find out what it is later <laughs> so going back to the nightclub which is apparently a petco now so you know maybe you could still party in there i don't know <laughs> i don't know what their policy is on that mm-hmm We have this character named Jimmy who's trying to buy drugs from Adrian, but has no money. Adrian is played by Paula Shepard, who is the star of Alice Sweet Alice, who we mentioned in the Stalking Laura episode. She is fantastic. She's one of those actresses who just has had this incredibly short career. She was in this and Alice Sweet Alice. Mm -hmm. Nothing else ever since. We have tried desperately to find any information about like what did she do after that where is she now it is impossible we we've stalked paula shepherd and even the worst part of it she moved where we live yeah she supposedly (laughs) lives in seattle or at one point lived in seattle and i tried my best to try to find any information about her Mm -hmm. and they even mentioned there's a making of on the uh vinegar syndrome release of liquid sky yeah that they tried to find her too yeah and they weren't able to slava couldn't find her yeah so i don't know she's out there somewhere she's out there somewhere she is amazing in this and she's amazing in alice sweet alice i mean she is just this tiny little slip of a thing it's just but she has like this massive personality and the character she plays adrian who is this drug dealer is supposed to be just like this street tough badass with like this tough reputation because everyone in this club knows who she is right everyone knows who she is and everyone is seems like they will not cross her too much like i feel like the the character that i if i could compare her to another character it would be kind of like samuel l jackson in jackie brown Mm, yeah can you believe it takes this bitch two hours to get ready? <laughs> she has some great lines like that, oh. yeah. Real quick, we mentioned Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Worth noting, Jimmy is played by Anne as well. Yeah. Now, if you are watching this the first time and you see, oh, our main, the main actress, Anne Carlisle, is playing two characters. Yeah. This is going to go somewhere, isn't it? No. It doesn't. No. No. She's, she's playing Jimmy and she's playing Margaret. The fact that they are identical aside from the fact that you know when playing jimmy she's wearing a fake mustache uh or a little wispy mustache and it's not fake okay well it has eyeliner on it has eyeliner okay well it's a emphasized mustache and she speaks with this raspy voice that kind of sounds like the um like that tiger electronics uh talk boy yeah so basically with women if you want to try to sound like a man you talk like this and so this is how jimmy talks and if you put a little bit of a southern accent on it, you sound like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. 
exactly. Thank you, sir. <laughs> but like I was saying with Talk Boy, we, we talk about this commercial all the time from oh, 90s. Yeah. <laughs> There's this, because it had this Home Alone 2 tie-in mm-hmm. where you would like slow down your voice. And there was this famous line in the commercial <laughs> where it's like, hi, my kids, kids were home early. early. <laughs> and that that's what my mind went, goes to with this. But again, going back to this. Anne's playing both these characters. It's not a plot point. They're not like secret twins separated at birth or something like that. No. She's just playing both characters. Yeah. So Jimmy turns to face Margaret at that point. And like you said, if you've never watched the movie before, is your first real like what the fuck moment. And I wonder if that's what the guy at the vinegar syndrome table mm-hmm. was talking about. But, you know, they were able to do some early split screen work in many scenes that involved the two characters that were actually really effective. That took several hours to shoot it each time. Like it looks good with the ones where they are both in the same shot together. But when they weren't doing that, they had body doubles yeah. for each. You know, Anne does well as Jimmy, I think, because I mean, Anne is a very androgynous person mm-hmm. in this, like in her her looks, how she carries herself. And the thing that I just want to say is that Anne looks fine as a woman. She's fucking hot as Jimmy. Like, that is a good-looking woman, <laughs> like, when she's in drag. Mm-hmm. I fucking love it. She is hot. <laughs> Just to say one more thing about Anne and how she looks in this movie, uh, she did a Playboy spread mm-hmm. not too long after Liquid Sky Out where she wore some of the outfits that yeah. are in this movie, including she just did a normal picture fully dressed as Jimmy yeah. in it. And I think that's so fucking cool. And so Jimmy suggests that they go back to Margaret's place because Adrian isn't going to give him drugs because he doesn't have money right now. And Margaret and Adrian are like in this weird, strained, romantic relationship and they live together in this penthouse apartment that we saw in the previous scene. They go back to her apartment and Margaret does this weird fucking mating dance at Jimmy. Yeah, it, while it's he a looks, weird scene. He looks disgusted while she's doing it. And even in the book, it like goes to Jimmy's point of view and he's just like, she's fucking doing it again. That <laughs> fucking horrible chicken dance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like when she's doing this dance, you can practically hear David Attenborough like doing a voice of like, hey, we have Margaret back in her domicile. <laughs> <laughs> And the alien notices that there are people in the apartment and is observing Margaret and Jimmy through its, like, bizarre predator vision. And it's it's like a mixture between predator vision and it kind of makes me think of, like, the low-end theory cover, Mm -hmm. like, for um, Tribe Called Quest. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think you showed it to me at some point. It kind of reminds me that. And Jimmy asks Margaret if she knows where Adrian keeps her drugs. But Margaret won't entertain the question at all. And meanwhile, and we're going to use this word a lot because so much stuff in this movie actually happens simultaneously and just cuts back and forth really, really quick. Even if it's like one person says one sentence and then it just goes yeah. several miles it, away. It's not like person. we have like a scene goes from start to finish and then we cut to another scene that's kind of like going on in parallel. It's mm-hmm. interspersed. Like you said, sentence by sentence, we might be jumping between these two scenes. Yeah. The film is oniony in its yeah. layers, so we have to, like, I'm going to have to try to, like, smush things together and compartmentalize it, which mm-hmm. is kind of fucking difficult. And one of the yeah. reasons why this episode took me so fucking long, because it's exhausting, and I'm just so tired. Yeah. I'm so tired of everything. But yeah, meanwhile, Adrian is performing at the nightclub, standing on a huge tower of amps with a vocoder or something strapped to her hip. She uh, presses the mic 
uh, to capture her heartbeat, like to her chest, and then manipulates it to get different sounds. And eventually a synthesizer is layered over the top of it while she sings. The song is so fucking ridiculous and I absolutely love it. It's called Me and My Rhythm Box. Uh, the lyrics were written by Slava Sukerman and it's so good because it's just like, Me and my rhythm box, are you jealous folks? <laughs> are you jealous folks? Yeah, it's can't quite call it a song. It is a performance is yeah. what it is. And yeah. it's fascinating. And, you know, I have the soundtrack that Mondo put out a while back and it is a 12 inch record, but you, I, I was playing, when I first put it on, I was playing it at 33, but it's actually supposed to be played at 45. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even fucking know until it came to me and my rhythm box. And it sounded like a B side for like the knife. It's fascinating how much it sounds like some off brand, the knife song, yeah. the fever ray, you know, kind of song. It, it's, it's one of my favorite things about that record. Cause we got that record just due, our, due to our loves for Liquid Sky, not necessarily because we love the music in yeah. Liquid Sky, but that was the highlight for me, that that version of Rhythm oh, Box. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's just compare the two a little bit. Here's a little bit of my Rhythm Box, and then here's a song from The Knife. My Rhythm Box is sweet Never forgets a Jimmy gets frustrated that Margaret won't tell him where Adrian keeps the drugs. And, you know, Margaret seems to have thought that they came back there to bone, but he starts ripping the place apart and breaking tons of her shit while, like, putting on one of her dresses. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Like, she kicks him out and he just kind of says to her through the door, like, we have to go back to the club. Yeah. Yes, this is Mr. McAllister. The father. (laughs) (laughs) So they go back to the club and a photographer confirms with Margaret that they're going to do a photo shoot at her apartment tomorrow with Jimmy. And Jimmy says that he'll only do it if drugs are provided, of course. He is the biggest bitch in the whole world. Like, just an entirely unredeemable character. Like, man, he looks good. Yeah, singularly focused on drugs. So the models are getting their makeup done and the actual makeup artist for the movie is the one doing their makeup in the scene. 
and he has lines like the movie again like it blurs the lines between documentary and feature filmmaking like here we have a fictitious film but we have the makeup artist here in a scene who is literally doing Anne's makeup for her following scene in the movie hey you're trying to save money why hire someone to be the makeup artist when you have a makeup artist it's true and meanwhile we get introduced to a married couple in their kitchen somewhere else entirely we don't know where the fuck they are the uh, husband is cooking up a hit of heroin and poetically describing it as liquid sky key to heaven to his wife who seems to just be like absolutely over his shit and wants him to quit like we have no idea who these two are they just show up and he talks really romantically about heroin and keeps trying to rationalize it to his wife. Like, what's wrong with wanting euphoria? <laughs> but she's just, like, really exasperated with him, as you would expect. I mean, he thinks it can, like, unlock his creativity. But she mentions in an offhand way that she's the breadwinner of their household. And his response is to tell her to tighten the belt around his arm for him if mm -hmm. she wants to really help him in life. Yeah. And when she won't, he gets really abusive with her. And it's like the greasiest mini soap opera I've ever watched. Yeah. Frankly, I <laughs> there's a few too many scenes of this couple, but yeah. they'll, they'll show up again. They don't play a huge role. No. So at the club, the fashion show is going on. A notable thing about this is that all the costumes for this and in the movie in general were all hodgepodge together from the cheapest clothes that the costume designer could wrangle together from local thrift stores. And Anne even stated in an interview that she traveled back to her home state of Connecticut to just buy a bunch of wedding dresses that would be like dyed and then stitched together like Frankenstein style to make new clothes. And the effect is actually really fucking cool. Like, a few of these new wave models that are in Liquid Sky were actually, like, well-known in ads all over the world. And that includes Anne. A lot of Anne's ads were chiefly displayed in, like, Tokyo subways. This movie, like, when we first saw it, we're like, oh, look at these pretentious shits, like, acting like they're doing some art stuff. It's like, no, these were actually, like, the models yeah, at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one thing that I like because a lot of these people are, like, unique looking. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like there's kind of, like, a homogenization with a lot of models these days. Like, with the really short, small nose mm -hmm. and the big lips and stuff like that. Like, all these people, they've got, like, these big Roman noses. Yeah. Like, everyone's very striking looking. I was going to say, the, the key here is look striking. Yeah. Right? Like, you want to look very unique, very striking, and very uh, attention-grabbing, both in, like, your physical appearance, but also the clothes you're wearing and the makeup you have. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nikki Carson, who created and ran the agency that managed all these models in the movie, is also in the movie. And, like so many others, like, it's just a short part, but he's playing himself mm -hmm. in it. And he is a really controversial guy. I mean, Andy Warhol's coming back again. He uh, painted a portrait of Andy Warhol by sticking a paintbrush up his asshole and gyrated about. And you know what? The painting doesn't look you that know, bad. It's honestly impressive. Yeah, he did a pretty good Some job. Some people can't paint that well with their hands. Yeah, he painted a pretty good picture of it. And I'm sure Andy was like, oh, this is great. And then just <laughs> walked away. <laughs> But at this point, Margaret has had several costume changes. Like, she's like an art school Barbarella. <laughs> <laughs> and Adrian offers Margaret some heroin while Jimmy calls her 
chicken woman, Mm -hmm. which apparently the guy who was supposed to play Jimmy, who Jimmy is based upon, did call Anne chicken woman all the time. Like, I always thought that was one of those things. It's like, oh, maybe that's like a Russian Mm -hmm. thing. Like, maybe this is like a troll two sort of. Yeah. Like, it doesn't translate well. Yeah, like it doesn't translate well. But it's like, no, there was a guy who just called Anne chicken woman. Yeah. Okay. Margaret says that she would prefer cocaine to heroin, and Adrian tells her that there's a guy giving out cocaine to all the chicks on the dance floor. And Margaret finds him and aggressively dances <laughs> at him. Like, it's kind of spooky. Yeah, it's like, you know those kinds of scenes you'd see in a movie where there's, like, they're in a dance hall or something like that, and two people see each other from across it, and they kind of move towards each other? It's like that, but scary. Because she's kind of coming at him with, like, this weird dance. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's just, like, standing there like, what is happening to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the thing that I love is that she's doing this and all the extras around here are all like pelvic thrusting together. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, this guy looks so much like Sam Raimi to me. <laughs> and uh, he says, you're a pretty cute chick. Want to snort some blow? <laughs> <laughs> and she invites him back to her place. Uh, second time tonight. Like I get the feeling that she lives like next door. Yeah, that's the only explanation, because she goes back and forth there pretty often. Mm -hmm. And then here we see some interesting choices they had to make filming some of these shots, because the only lighting that was set up in Margaret's apartment is neon lighting. Uh, They had to do a series of close-ups for the most part, where no one could really move or improvise other than moving their lips to speak, because if they did, the camera would go immediately out of focus. The lighting is extremely cool. Like, it's very Dario Argento in some shots. So it's understandable to want to keep the lighting at the expense of the actors being able to move freely. And I watched an interview where Slava always comes back to this because up until a few years ago, the movie could only be watched on VHS or shitty VHS transfer to DVD. And the 35mm inhibited the look as well. So... The Vinegar Syndrome release is actually the first time the colors in Liquid Sky were ever able to be seen the way they were supposed to be seen. Something like 35 years after the fact. Yeah, and it's honestly a really great example of how much of an effect lighting can have on a on a movie. You yeah. know, a well-lit film can just turn any scene into a much more interesting scene. Make it look way more expensive than it actually is. Absolutely, yeah. And anyway, the guy doesn't want to give Margaret cocaine now that they're back at her apartment, but he tries to get her to take quaaludes instead. The main thing I know quaaludes from is Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) We know what those do to you, but he's really fucking pushy and tries to use the fact that he acts in soap operas and his capital F father. father. My father works for MGM and he can, quote, help her. And Margaret rightfully thinks that this is some corny shit, but he's like, you should be nice to me because of my daddy. My father could get you a job. My father. And this is where we get a taste of the very unique dialogue in this movie that I wish, like, I could just put on t-shirts and sell. (laughs) Uh, Margaret says to him, and I quote, you just want to get laid and you'll say anything to get laid. Just like everyone else from California. What, you got a cock for a brain, baby? Don't fuck with me, you asshole. Why don't you fuck your father if he loves you so much? And it's said exactly like that. Uh Like, it's just amazing. And his reaction to this is to try to jam the lewds down her throat while yelling, Swallow it! Mm -hmm. Swallow it! (laughs) (laughs) Until he seems to almost come 
from doing that. It's really weird. But she tells him to go home to his mom, and he just starts smacking the piss out of her. Mm-hmm. And the alien vision comes back to spare us the uncomfortable vision of seeing him jamming two more lewds down her throat. Mm-hmm. And Margaret starts faking like she's really into it and asks him to get her flask for her but then empties it into his eyes and tries to run away. He catches her on the stairs outside of her door, and unfortunately, I have to say this for the first of many times, that Margaret is sexually violated in this movie. Yeah, this is a recurring theme in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not super, super graphic. Like, we aren't in the territory of something like thriller, a cruel picture. Fortunately but not. It's never fun to see. You know, I remember the first, uh, I watched that with you, uh-huh. and we had the, like, the blinds open, and I was like, <laughs> do you think that we should, like, close the curtains? And you were like, no, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, it was, like, close up of, like, a dick going into asshole. And, yeah. and you were like, nope, nope, nope. And you were like, pa- and then you paused it. And it was like, <laughs> no, it was no worse. stop, it's worse now. <laughs> it's like, it, flying to the curtains. Uh. <laughs> But meanwhile, a dude's plane has landed and he takes a taxi. We have no clue who he is. And the next morning, Margaret is really out of it, as you could expect. And the guy who just showed up off the plane is on the Empire State Building with some kind of tracking equipment and a telescope looking for something. Uh, you see the interior of their apartment, and it's in, like, natural light now. And the set design was actually so seamless that I never noticed this until I watched it in an interview. They actually changed the apartment dressing with what time of day it was. Like, the clothes on the hangers change color, mm-hmm. and, like, the tapestries are different. It's yeah. a very interesting choice to make. It's very subtle, but it, it definitely adds a lot to the fact that so much of the movie takes place in that one room. Yeah. That, like, that it's... It, it really changes the the mood of the room throughout the time of day. Yeah, like at night, a lot of the stuff is purple. And then during the day, a lot of the stuff in there is yellow. Yeah. And so the guy last night who was trying to get his wife to help him shoot up is there in Margaret's apartment buying heroin from Adrian. He acts really creepy and inappropriate towards Margaret while Adrian goes to get her secret stash of heroin, which is behind that life mask mm-hmm. of Margaret. And he seems, like, primed to go ahead and just, like, assault her until Adrian tells him to stop. Yeah, he's very creepy throughout this scene. He asks if he can shoot up there because his wife is a bitch. And um, Margaret says, you know, she does not want to see that in her apartment. And the guy tells Adrian that her girlfriend is a real bitch. To which Adrian responds with something that I actually love to quote all the time. Margaret is an uptight wasp cunt from Connecticut. (laughs) So Adrian lets the guy, whose name is Paul, shoot up in their apartment, but tells him that he can't stay afterwards because she and Margaret are leaving. And she says to Paul, yeah, it takes this bitch two hours to get ready to go somewhere. (laughs) Adrian has so many great lines in this movie. So as Paul is shooting up, the alien becomes alert again at this point, and the guy on the Empire State Building seems to be zeroing in on it, like he can tell something's going on. And Paul shoots up, and it appears as though the alien is extracting something from the needle as Mm -hmm. well. And as this happens, the, the guy's tracker goes absolutely fucking nuts. Like, he found what he was looking for. This dude is an alien hunter. Yes. 
Oh, he's a scientist. He's but a scientist. He, he's an he'll alien. repeatedly say, I'm a scientist, but mm-hmm. yes, he's an alien hunter. Alien hunting. Alien hunting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Alien hunting. I saw that on TV, too. <laughs> Remember that? No. SpongeBob. Oh, yeah. So at the same time, Jimmy and his mother are at, an, at a restaurant, and Adrian and Margaret are in a cafe. Margaret looks like a wreck. I guess she took Adrian's comment to heart and just left without really getting ready. And then also at the same time, like we have all this stuff happening yeah. at the exact same time. Also at the same time, the alien hunter, a dude named Johan, played by Otto von Werner, <laughs> who's going to be in Perfect Strangers as well, is talking with a friend about the aliens that he's searching for. And this guy, Otto, was a friend of Slava's who was not an actor at all, but he enrolled in Bob Brady's class in order to become one for a movie. And we couldn't really find anything on him as well. Yeah. And then, speak of the devil, Johan's friend is Owen, played by Bob Brady. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He says that these aliens have been popping up in areas where there's a lot of heroin, particularly punk circles, Owen kind of goes into a tirade about mods versus rockers. I mean, I guess he was watching Quadrophenia before Johan showed up. Uh, Johan says that people are dying and that it's even happening during the act of sexual intercourse. He says that they've been able to photograph the aliens and wants to observe the alien he found today, but he doesn't know where to go because the Empire State Building is closed at night. Owen says that he doesn't know how he can help. He's just an acting teacher. Uh, not totally convinced that Bob Brady just forgot that he was in a movie for a second. <laughs> um, Owen says that he has an appointment and basically shoes Johan away, even though there is apparently a very rare alien nearby that's killing people. Well, Owen has more important things to do, as we will see soon. <laughs> So at the cafe, Adrian tells Margaret, so you got raped, so what? Eat your fucking food. Apple pie, shit. It, again, it's funny because every, everything Adrian says is in this like tough, uncaring, drug dealer kind of character. And meanwhile, Paula Shepard. Is the cutest little thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, she's what, maybe four foot eleven mm-hmm. at most like. yeah she's got these like she's got teeth that look like trident gum uh-huh. she's got these big bright eyes yeah. and little freckles and stuff she's just she's so fucking but cute. she's saying these cruel things i and... know <laughs> it's amazing like margaret seems like she almost like she's dissociating or something like really robotically yet wistfully talking about how her mother used to bake five or six apple pies at a time and that she had an apple tree in her backyard Mm. growing up. And Adrian one-ups Margaret with this story by telling a story about when her mom came home from the mental hospital, she went on a date with a guy and stood up on the table and pissed everywhere, (laughs) screaming that she was Jesus and baptizing them, and then they threw her back in. Mm Mm-hmm. Adrian tells Margaret that they should move to Berlin and expresses anger at how fucked up Margaret's hair looks. Again, going back to the hair thing, uh, which reminds Margaret that she was supposed to meet someone that Adrian hates. Owen. Yep, that was Owen's appointment that was more important than uh, alien hunting. Uh, (laughs) Seeing Margaret. Yeah. So going back to the fancy restaurant, Jimmy is now just kind of scowling at his mom and not eating the absolutely horrible looking (laughs) food. It's like this, just this absolutely disgusting looking plate of food. And there's like a plate of butter next to them. It's like 17 pats of butter. (laughs) And I guess that's dessert. But um, 
His mom's trying to very sweetly get him to come visit her sometime for dinner. She works a lot. She's lonely. She wants to see her son more. And she seems to have these qualms with having an adult son and getting older and saying things like, you know, when the last time someone saw us together, they thought that uh, you were my brother. Like a little shit, he just cuts her off and asks for money yeah, and won't tell her what for. Like, he's just a little brat. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, again, meanwhile, meanwhile. So now Owen is at Margaret's apartment rolling a joint. He's her teacher in this, in the movie and in real life. Yep. Anna's wearing a costume in this scene that she would later wear again in her Playboy shoot. Mm-hmm. Without a bra, though. <laughs> and Owen thinks that she's ruining her career by hanging out with people like Adrian and thinks that the photographer coming over later only wants to fuck her. She's like, well, no, everyone's gay. What are you talking about? <laughs> but he thinks that she looks and acts like a hooker and that he's going to catch a disease off of her and calls her a bitch and that doesn't stop him from wanting to screw her mm-hmm. as soon as he possibly can. Yep. Again, more important than aliens. Yeah, and let's get this out of the way. Bob Brady looks like Captain Kangaroo. He does. In real life, he was like an ex-mime, like he was in like this official American mime troupe. <laughs> and it's really weird seeing him coming on to her, especially after he said all this horrid shit to her. Yeah. And, I mean, she pretty much says no and that he should just go, but doesn't really do anything to make him stop, which wakes up the alien. Yes. So Margaret just kind of starfishes and zones out and lets him have sex on her when I guess he has an orgasm. The alien does its weird, colorful extraction thing that we saw earlier on him, and then suddenly she tells him, get off me, Owen. Come on, mm-hmm. time to get up. Yep. <laughs> and uh, he ain't moving. Mm-hmm. And there's a big old crystal jutting out of the back of his head. Uh, Margaret plucks it out and it suddenly disappears. Adrian comes back and is understandably confused and pissed off as to why there's this unconscious naked man on the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, she puts, and then it's like, oh, he's dead. Yeah. She puts, like, this neon light around Owen's face and sits next to him and does, like, this slam poetry thing where Mm -hmm. she, like, punches her leg to keep a beat. And, like, she's really hitting her leg hard when she does. Like, she shakes her whole body every time she hits herself. Like, probably bruised the fuck out of herself. Like, it's an odd little interlude and it goes on for a little too long. But it has some good bits in it. Like, you're dead now. Shit. And you're going to hell suits you well shit (laughs) (laughs) i just love paula shepherd so much i really wish that we could find out what happened here i always wonder one day if i'm gonna be walking down the street and there's just gonna be this tiny older woman walking (laughs) by it's like could that be paula shepherd oh yeah (laughs) i mean adrian obviously hated owen as much as he hated her but is like, I always wanted to fuck a dead man, and now's my chance. Yeah. And Margaret is really not into this necrophilic turn of events and tells her not to do it. But Adrian just crawls onto his face and starts grinding all over it. Yep. She tells Margaret not to get moral with her and that she's nothing but a whore. And that really pisses Margaret off. And she calls Adrian a low-class monster <laughs> and then insults her parents. Like saying, you know, your mother was crazy and your dad was a bum. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, sets Adrian the fuck off and she pulls out a switchblade and just tries to stab Margaret to death. 
And they kind of tussle and fight over the knife. And then Margaret's trying to stab Adrian. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just stop fighting. Yeah, they, they give each other each, you know, an attempt to stab each other. And then I guess that was it. They're, they're done. The call to draw. So after they stop, they remove this like metallic cover that they had over Owen. And so how I had to outline the, all this, I had to do it all in continuous blocks. Otherwise, I'd go crazy since everything happens at the same time and just goes boom, 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 back and forth, back and forth. But when they do that, they cut to uh, Johan and Jimmy's mom spying on them. And she's just like, oh, that's a dead body. And it's the funniest part in the movie. And I feel bad that I couldn't write this outline in a more linear way because (laughs) it's just so good. But yeah, while all this stuff with Margaret and Owen and Adrian is happening, Johan finds a building that is some ways like directly across from Margaret's apartment and seems to think that if he just goes up to someone who lives there and asks, yo, can I look out of your window for several hours at this chick's place? Like, they'll be like, hell yeah, man. But like, as it turns out, yeah, that mm-hmm. that works. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Yes. Because um, the person who runs into Johan is Jimmy's mom. And she is thirsty right off the bat it's for him. It's hard to describe just how much. Like she's she's frothing. Everything she says has this tinge of like trying to be seductive to it. Oh yeah. Even when it's like the most unsexy thing you could say. Oh, yeah, the most innocuous things just absolutely like dripped in sex. Yeah. This movie has so many things to it that it's like, okay, if you're going to see it for this, see it for this. I really feel like this character, Jimmy's mom, Sylvia, is like one of the unsung, like perfect parts of the movie because it's oh, just yeah. like, wow, she's just, she wants it so bad. There's a few things about her character that are just absolutely <laughs> oh, hilarious. Yeah. So um, Jimmy's mom, Sylvia, thinks that Johan's with the fire department, but he tells her that he's a scientist and then she just layers on the flirtation more like, ooh, like she offers for him to come up and have dinner with her. Her apartment is really, really cool. I love her apartment. Like, it has all these retro futuristic, like, doodads everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what any of this shit is, but it looks so cool. Yeah. Sylvia's apartment looks like if Alex DeLarge walked into it, he'd be like, ooh, malanky bit horror show. (laughs) She orders up some Chinese food. Shrimp. Four different kinds of shrimp. She loves shrimp. It comes up a lot. So much fucking shrimp. She's like, I want shrimp fried rice. I want jumbo shrimp. I want shrimp in lobster sauce. And another kind of shrimp. Yeah. (laughs) And not only does she order a lot of shrimp, she finds way to work shrimp into a lot of conversations. And a lot of conversations where she's trying to sound sexy. Like, I think she may be sexually attracted to shrimp. Like, maybe shrimp is like a major aphrodisiac. I don't know. For her it is. That's for sure. Like, in a movie that's full of so much, like, what the fuck am I watching? Like, this was the one defining moment where... Where we like put our hands up in the air and we were like, what? <laughs> What's with all the fucking shrimp? But we find out that Jimmy's mom, Sylvia, is a television producer. She asked Johan if he's trying to look for heroin and doesn't want the police to know, but he explains that it doesn't have anything to do with drug trafficking. But he doesn't quite know what to do because no one really knows the nature of the aliens. Uh, she peeks from around the corner after he says this and is just like, you're from Germany, right? I'm Jewish. Like, and, and tries to sound sexy yeah, like the, when she that, says that's it. That's her trying to hit on him. Yeah, like, like this is a pickup line for her. She's saying to him, like, hey, baby, have you ever ha- read that book, House of Dolls? You know, 
there was a sex slavery wing of the concentration camps called the Joy Division. Unknown Pleasures. Mm -hmm. Know what I'm talking about? This is a new wave movie. You know, there's some Joy Division that I like. Some of it, I just can't get into Mm -hmm. it. I fucking love New Order. Do you like New Order? Oh, yeah. But Sylvia does seem earnestly interested in the aliens. Like, she is never like, wow, this guy's fucking crazy if he thinks he's looking at aliens. She's just kind of like this foregone thing, like, oh, okay. Yeah, I think she even mentions that she's, like, wanting to do a a television special about aliens. She actually has some, like, posters of UFOs in her apartment. Like, what fucking luck for him. Yeah. Anyone else would be like, all right, another fucking crazy person on the streets of the Uh, city. Unfortunately for him, it's a double-edged sword because she does believe him that the aliens are real but she's not interested because she just wants to have sex with him it's true yeah those are her only two things that is very very true that the aliens don't even make top five she believes him she just doesn't care because she really wants to have sex and eat shrimp yeah she wouldn't even care if he was crazy no but she asks him if he has ever seen a ufo before and he's just like yeah there's one outside your window Mm -hmm. she's just like uh what (laughs) (laughs) and she tells him to set up his telescope and starts boozing it up with him you know lubricating him a little bit trying to (laughs) kind of smooth him over and um makes the shrimp go down easier yeah and when they look through the telescope for the first time that's when we get that amazing like oh that's a dead body (laughs) (laughs) just so nonchalant and like even maybe slightly sexy yeah also what i love about that when she says that johan is just me like oh yeah i must be looking at the wrong thing he just adjusts his telescope he doesn't care that he like just so happened to like accidentally rear window this yeah because that's the thing is like that's his friend yeah he doesn't realize that yeah he just immediately moves it up like he does not even look at the dead body Uh Yeah, he, he just moves it up so you can see the UFO. And he's like, that's a UFO. And she remarks how small it is and is like, oh, what a world where Germans are as big as the Empire State Building and aliens are the size of jumbo shrimp. <laughs> what the fuck? And again, shrimp. Trying to be very sexy. Like that, oh, again, yeah. is another pickup line for her. Mm-hmm. Shrimp, baby. Yeah. And so Margaret and Adrian stick Owen in like what I can only assume is a Christmas tree box. Because it's the same size and it's been taped over and over and over, yeah. which anyone who owns like a fake Christmas tree, that's what you do with the Christmas <laughs> tree. You put it back in the box it came in and you just tape over it with new tape every year yep. until it is a box made of tape. That's the tradition. The most important Christmas tradition <laughs> of all. And they just stick Owen's body out on the balcony. And Sylvia and Johan are watching this and Sylvia's like, Should, shouldn't they call the police? And Johan goes, why don't we call the police? They obviously don't want the authorities involved. Everyone has their reasons. They've got heroin there. Like, Johan is not a snitch. No. He says that the police are no protection from aliens. And Sylvia, they're looking at a dead body and there's aliens and stuff. And Sylvia's just like, do you have protection from aliens? Maybe a laser gun in your pants? <laughs> Like, oh, don't be coy, cowboy. Like, she may as well just rip her clothes off and say, intercourse. Mm -hmm. And because this sly dog stuff seems to just bounce right off him. Like, this is a man of science. He wants to do his work. You know, he definitely gives the impression throughout this that, like, if it weren't for the fact that there are aliens killing people, he'd be down. He's into it. Just, you know, he's the one person in this entire world who's like, hey, guys, aliens are killing people. That's our number one priority right now. (laughs) 
So Margaret asks what they're going to do with Owen, and Adrian tells her that they're just going to leave him there on the roof and run away to Berlin as soon as possible, possibly even like the next day. Mm-hmm. And Adrian then tells Margaret that they're going to have a wake for Owen, and she goes off to buy some food. Yeah, got to get a wake cake. Yeah, and still, oh my God. <laughs> Gerard died of flu. That is so Gerard. God, I love Peep Show. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, Sylvia wanders off to fix more alcoholic beverages for them. And Johan says, like, oh, he's going to run out for a bit because the little one just <laughs> left the apartment. And he's going to go warn them that they're in danger. I love that he calls them the little one. Yeah. Because it is true. Paula is the little one. Paula is very, very short. And Anne is very tall. Yeah. Made even taller by the platform she's mm-hmm. always wearing. Sylvia says that he's the first man to run out on her before dinner and that she isn't going to wait up on him because she doesn't like cold Chinese food. And he says that duty is more important than shrimp, but she is like, well, it's my house, and in my house, shrimp is king. (laughs) She's like, shrimps are more important than duty. Yeah. And that's why she got fired from her last job. But meanwhile, meanwhile, meanwhile... In the subplot that no one cares about. Yeah, Paul's wife, Kathy, is having a dinner party, but Paul is dope sick from shooting up at Adrian's earlier and doesn't want to get up and see anyone. They have this tedious argument about it, about how he pissed his career away. He's never made money off of his films or his books, and he's going to make a fool of her in front of her clients. Yada, yada, yada. I mean... I don't know which would actually look worse for her, like telling everyone, hey, my husband isn't feeling well and won't be attending tonight. Sorry, everybody. You'll meet him another time. Or, hi, everyone. This is my shivering, sweaty, pukey, pale husband who clearly just did hard drugs a few hours ago. Like, is it, you know, does his presence make you comfortable? Like. You know, I have a feeling that people won't mind so much if he's not there. And at this point... Kathy tells Paul that it would actually be better if he just fucked off altogether and left their apartment entirely. She married a man, not an Irvine Welsh novel. (laughs) She goes back to the party and gets sweet-talked by dollar store Donald Sutherland. He hates Paul. It's all good. Everyone hates Paul. Universe in harmony. (laughs) So Johan runs into Adrian at the liquor store and he tries to warn her, but she automatically thinks that he's a cop. Like he says that he can help her, but she literally is like, you'll never catch me, copper. To be fair, when we see this a couple of times, anytime Johan tries to warn somebody about the aliens, he comes off very weird. Yeah. It's just this tall German man coming up to him being like, you're in danger. Come with me. Well, pulling the whole like Terminator, like no time for answers. I'm going to just pull you out of here. I would go with him. Yeah. You have a big German guy. is like, you're in danger. Come with me. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to know like why he's doing this. Like, is it so that she can be aware of the little invasion that he has planned for her and not missing a beat? He's just like invasion. Yes. Uh, how do you know about the invasion? <laughs> <laughs> She just tells him to fuck off and leaves. And while Adrian is gone, Paul shows up at Margaret's and is very sickeningly like, I'm going to make you come, baby. Yeah. And is licking his lips and groping her and shit. Like, he threatens to call the cops and rat her and Adrian out and calls her a dyke and a cunt and says that he's going to fuck her till she knows what it means. Mm -hmm. Whatever the fuck that means. 
oh, I guess I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Margaret rips her dress open and tells him to just do whatever to her because he doesn't even exist to her. But seems slightly defeated that doing that doesn't deter him at all. Like, Mm -hmm. he's not like, oh. I'm wounded. Yeah. I don't want you anymore. Like, he just sees it as, like, an, an opening. And meanwhile, Sylvia is very intently watching all of this while the poor delivery man is just trying to drop off her metric shitload of shrimp. <laughs> and, um, like, he just wants to leave, and she's just, like, looking through the telescope, like, uh-huh. oh, mm-hmm. oh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Johan comes back to her apartment and says that, the little one didn't believe him. And um, Sylvia is just like, well, who would believe a man who is capable of waiting until the shrimp gets cold? It always comes back to shrimp. <laughs> it always comes back to fucking shrimp. Like, okay, let's just put the shrimp thing to bed <laughs> completely. So the actress who plays Sylvia named Susan Dukas said that during an acting exercise, she referred to herself as like not being a shrimp compared to Otto von Werner. Because he is really, really tall. And that kind of stuck with Slava. Like, he thought that that was incredible. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, though, Slava says that um, everyone would often meet up at a Chinese restaurant to run lines. And they would eat a lot of shrimp while they were there. And that's where it all comes from. Like, it could be what Susan said, but it could also be what Slava said. Like, it could be both. You know, shrimp is love. Shrimp (laughs) is life. Always want shrimp. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Paul is now doing exactly what Owen was doing earlier. But Margaret is a lot meaner (laughs) to Mm -hmm. Paul. And, man, Margaret does get raped a lot in this movie. Like, if, if you're just letting the movie happen to you, it doesn't like register right away like man she gets raped a lot yeah it's really horrible like it's disturbing and so paul has possibly the most violent orgasm i've ever seen in a movie except maybe in the robert pattinson the lighthouse (laughs) that one was pretty violent but um after he has his orgasm the alien wakes up and is like hey and now paul is lifeless with a crystal sticking out of the back of his head Margaret pushes him off and starts calling out her door to the balcony. Like, she seems to think that there's, like, this unseen person shooting glass arrows into the heads of these guys to protect her. Like, she refers to it as Indian, which I never caught why until, like, my fourth viewing. Mm -hmm. She says that she can't have all these bodies here and just asks out into the void that there be no more bodies. And then suddenly, with like a mixture of some kind of stop motion with some aluminum foil or something, uh, Paul's body kind of rolls up into a metallic ball and disappears. Margaret seems to be immediately in love now that it did all this just for her to get rid of all these assholes and wants the Indian or whatever to show itself to her. And at this point is when Adrian shows up with the food and just tosses Margaret a raw chicken. (laughs) And then while all this is happening, Sylvia and Johan have their shrimp on shrimp on shrimp on shrimp on shrimp on shrimp dinner. And Johan explains that humans have opiate receptors in the brain and goes on to say that a molecule similar to opium occurs naturally in the human body that gets triggered in the brain during orgasm. And that obviously really fascinates oh, Sylvia. Yes. Orgasms, you say. Mm-hmm. He said the O word. And they discuss this further, hypothesizing why the alien is attracted to heroin and the human orgasm, while Sylvia is not so subtly hinting that maybe she would like to have an orgasm mm-hmm. tonight. And back at the apartment, Margaret is just kind of playing with this raw chicken. Yeah. 
And like it's a wet doll, like playing with its legs and stuff. And she is a chicken woman. And Margaret asks Adrian if she's going to fuck this too since it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so fucking funny to me. But Adrian just tells her to shove it in the oven and then she'll fuck Margaret. And we have this great visual of Margaret sitting in bed in this dyed purple wedding dress that's open in the front. So you can see like her boobs and her bra. And she has this raw chicken in her lap and she's peeling potatoes with a switchblade onto (laughs) it. Like incredible. Yeah. What a look. There's a knock at the door and it's Jimmy with the photography crew. Margaret totally forgot that this whole photo shoot thing was going to happen tonight. And now there's at least 10 people crammed into her little apartment. And what a group. Yep. (laughs) Nina Karova, our producer slash writer slash etc. is here and has provided the cocaine. And there's a fashion editor for a magazine played by Anne's sister, Sarah Carlyle. Yeah, and I say this every time. She looks straight out of a John Waters movie. She acts like she's out of a John Waters movie. Yeah, she looks like Connie Marble from Pink Flamingos. Yeah, and her acting style in this is very John Waters. Mm-hmm. I guess there's only two types of people in this world. My type of people and assholes. <laughs> <laughs> a few people we saw in the background and a few like earlier scenes are here and... This is a weird one. There is this really pretty woman there that plays an assistant, and her name was Deborah Jacobs, and she was a stewardess on Flight 93 during the September 11th attacks. Yeah, it's a that was a strange story to hear about. Um, you know, they were kind of talking about what happened to some of the actors after the movie. Yeah, a lot of it was like, you know, this person died of AIDS. This person died. Like a lot of them died from AIDS, which is really really sad. And you know, some like they couldn't contact them right some went on to do some other things and then they come to her and it's like she was a stewardess for flight 93 and you know a lot of people forget about that plane mm-hmm. but you know as the uh, all the passengers fought back yeah and then the um the plane crashed in pennsylvania yeah it makes it even more eerie because Anne's apartment exterior show showcases the world trade center several times in mm. the movie and i mean i feel like anytime you see the world trade center in a movie it's always it's like this kind of grim sort of like oh. yeah you can't see them without immediately thinking about 9-11 yeah like when we found that out about deborah jacobs that like it really is like a, oh like a holy shit moment yeah and so everyone at this party is doing drugs and adrian tells the magazine editor all about margaret's life story up until this point which is actually just Anne Carlyle's life story you know brought up in a Christian household in Connecticut went to school there did this etc and at this point there's actually a slideshow that plays of Anne at various stages <laughs> of her life from you know a baby like as to up to like a teenager yeah and it's really interesting because there's this warped like nursery yeah like thing over it and i know that it is an actual it was like a real piece of music that was fed through Mm -hmm. the cmi and like in between these pictures of her like these really wholesome pictures of her as a child is uh just margaret snorting lines (laughs) and lines of coke which uh was actually powdered sugar Mm. which was probably really unpleasant so margaret and jimmy start getting their pictures taken together using body doubles and trick camera angles and everyone mentions how similar the two of them look not that they literally look like the same exact (laughs) fucking person but we get another slideshow of a few like 
different like new wave glamour shots of Margaret while the magazine editor makes like these snide remarks disguised as questions to her about how she's clearly trying to escape reality with her fashion and that she's tacky and the audio gets slowed down and looped on like the especially like hurtful words Mm -hmm. and it's it gets like kind of nauseating after a while like it's just like this static picture of her like with this all this crazy makeup and it's like tricky tricky it's like god i feel like i'm on downers now like what the fuck and to all these questions margaret just says like no you're tacky or you're strange and it devolves into like this weird round robin somehow where everyone is says like where they're from in america like all of america is represented in this room and it's kind of sad again to see deborah jacobs say that she's from philadelphia i just get upset that like there's so much blissful ignorance and so much media and everything like before a disaster that's really far off Mm. i don't know like it's not the same, but I really thought that like 2020 was going to be my year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, it kind of feels like that. So everyone starts arguing at this point about whether Margaret or Jimmy is Miss America. Yeah. And that devolves into all of them like wanting to see Margaret and Jimmy fuck in front of them. Yep. Like they really are like, do it, do it, do yeah. it, do it. Jimmy just like starts berating Margaret. He calls her ugly and a chicken and that she's got horrible bags under her eyes. And Margaret just is like telling him to stop. And that just goes on and on. And it's like he's going like cluck, cluck. And he steps on her feet. And then she's just like, you know what? No, you're beautiful. You're the most beautiful boy in the world. And I I do want to fuck you. You should hit me because I'm so ugly. Let me suck you off right now. And... So he just starts smacking her repeatedly across the face. Mm-hmm. And while he's smacking her, she's just like, oh, yeah, baby, let me at that wiener right now. <laughs> and everyone around them is goading them on. And one of the guys holds up a mirror to Jimmy's face and is like, we want to see it. We have to see you fuck her. Mm-hmm. And Margaret starts going down on Jimmy and pretty quickly afterward with everyone screaming, do it, do it, do it, do it. While they're, while she's doing it, uh, Jimmy calls her a whore and then turns into aluminum foil and disappears. And no one seems that phased. Yeah. Initially people were like, what did I just see? Where'd he go? Yeah, but total disbelief that what they saw actually just happened. There's like, hmm, that's odd. Yeah, how'd you do that? Yeah, Nina does not miss a beat and just looks at her assistant and is like, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And they get the fuck out of there. So Margaret says that she did this to Jimmy. And then they all go looking for him on the roof, thinking that Margaret just did like a David Copperfield magic trick. I think Deborah Jacobs sees the the box that had Owen in it and is like, "What's in? Is he in that box?" And Adrian is just like, "Oh no, that's where I keep my dead bodies to fuck." And that upsets Margaret, and she tells Adrian like not to mess with her because she kills with her cunt. Mm-hmm. Best tagline ever. I kill. Yeah. I kill with my cunt. Um, then Adrian tries to call Margaret's bluff by uh, raping her. Like, even saying to everybody, like, who wants to see me fuck Margaret and not die? And everyone's like, "Ah, we don't really want to see you fuck her. I don't want to see you fuck her. That's not nearly as fun. But there's still, a couple of them actually help pin Margaret down so that Adrian can do this. Yeah, a couple of them pin Margaret down and then she, uh, she gets on her and really, really just 
goes at her really fucking yeah. hard. Like it, uh, ugh, yeah. <laughs> and then promptly turns into an aluminum foil and disappears. Yes. And then uh, one of the girls who was holding Margaret down is like, "This can be explained," <laughs> and which Margaret's like, "Yeah, I can explain it." And then she goes into this really long speech while putting on like she she cuts all the lights in her apartment and starts putting on this like phosphorescent luminous paint on her face and starts talking about her upbringing and how her life was supposed to be. It's like, I was told that my prince would come and he'd be a lawyer and I'd have his children and on Sundays we would barbecue Mm -hmm. and all the princes and their princesses would come by and eat it and they would say, delicious, delicious. Oh, how boring. Yeah. (laughs) Her life in Connecticut, what could have been. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, what her life is going to be or is already. It's like... And I was told that I had to go to New York and that my prince would be an agent and he would get me a role and I would be a waitress for 30 years, for 50 years, you know. And I was told that to be fashionable is to be androgynous. And then she says, and I am not less androgynous than David Bowie himself. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, I love that. (laughs) And like this speech combined with her putting on paint is actually really, really cool. Yeah, it's actually done really well because... Uh, as she's talking more and more her, of her face is being exposed by the pain it, it, it's a cool effect it's really really neat and um once margaret is all made up she manically demands that they all go to the club right now like it's like there's nothing left to do but dance mm-hmm. and uh, she jets out of there and when they get to the street one of the girls asks like are you looking for Adrian right now? And she says, Adrian is dead. It's every man for himself. And just jumps in a taxi and leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, in the book, as far as I can remember, when she's at the club, she sees Jimmy there. Yeah. And it's hard to tell, like, if he's actually there mm-hmm. or, like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, but it sounds like the book makes it more ambiguous about, like, is this in her head? Whereas the movie, it's pretty unambiguous that, yeah, this stuff is happening. Mm-hmm, exactly. And uh, Margaret, you know, serendipitously mm-hmm. finds who other than Sam Raimi boy at the club and tells him to come back to her place. He seems really surprised that she wants anything to do with him. And that, you know, like he knows what he did was fucked up. Yeah. And that is the worst thing about pieces of shit like this. Cause they know what they're doing. Yeah. And, uh, then he's like, you're really freaky. <laughs> and she's just like, Oh yeah, baby. I'm sure I am freaky for you. <laughs> at the same time, Sylvia and Johan go back to looking through his telescope after, after dinner just in time to see margaret fuck sam raimi yeah and um she plops into his lap and wants to know all about german alien orgasms yeah you're an alien in this country maybe i should study you kind of stuff <laughs> yeah mm. <laughs> like she just doesn't stop yeah every opportunity so margaret jumps on sam raimi and he comes in less than like 20 seconds mm-hmm. like he comes right away and uh the alien gets him too naturally and Margaret is just absolutely thrilled by this. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you be when you have all these horrible people that are doing yeah, all she, this shit Yeah, she's now using you. it as revenge, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's why she brought him in. Found that guy in the club, brought him back to her place, specifically because she knew. 
I kill with my cunt. Exactly. So Johan leaves Sylvia hanging because he says, you know, Margaret is in terrible danger right Mm -hmm. now. And uh, meanwhile, Paul's wife, Kathy, is looking for Adrian at the club. You know, the sub, sub, sub plot. Mm -hmm. And uh, Margaret is putting on a wedding dress and tells the Indian to come out and that everyone is dead now and that they can finally be together. And uh, it is odd that she's built this narrative in her head. It's the sweetest thing anyone's ever done for her. I guess so, which is <laughs> sad. Yeah. Johan just kind of walks into her apartment and tells her that they need to leave because she's in danger. He saw all the deaths happen and knows how they happened. Like he says there's an alien creature on her roof and tells her their reason for killing is to get nourishment from opiates, but they find something more appetizing in the chemical in the brain similar to opiates produced during orgasm. She's like, well then, why didn't I die? And then he says, did you have an orgasm? And she goes... No. <laughs> and there we have Nina's plot. Yeah. <laughs> and and so Johan takes her to like her little balcony and shows her the alien craft on her roof and she just stabs him in the back with Adrian's switchblade. Yeah. And um Sylvia's watching this, sees it and then just runs out. Yeah. She's going to go over to the apartment too. Mhm. And uh Margaret calls out to the craft because she knows the alien cares about her and that she wants to make love to it mm-hmm. somehow, which causes the craft to raise to leave like yeah. no. Oh no. <laughs> no thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So Margaret freaks out over this and quickly grabs some shit and cooks up a hit of heroin and shoots up in front of the UFO. And then at this point, both Kathy and Sylvia show up at Margaret's apartment at the same time. You know, Kathy looking for Paul and Sylvia having seen what just happened. Mm -hmm. They go onto the balcony and they see Margaret like convulsing. It's like this weird sort of like gift. Yeah, thing. the stroping light kind of effect where mm-hmm. she's like, I don't she, know how she, to she's it. like bending over and going up. Right, and it's, like, it's like she's possessed. Yeah, she's caught in a beam that's being projected out by the UFO, and so Margaret disappears in this blinding light, and then the UFO just nonchalantly drifts off. Mm-hmm. And then there's a time lapse of the city at night with like the Empire State Building right there in the middle, and that's the end of the fucking movie. Yeah. What's weird to think about, you know, we watched a few interviews after this, and Slava has mentioned that he is, at least in theory, working on a Liquid Sky 2. Yeah. I don't know how you make a sequel to this movie. Well, I think it would be essentially like the same plot because the the alien didn't die or anything True, like that. It just, it just goes somewhere else and starts feeding off I of guess, someone else. I guess just, I don't know how you make a sequel that involves Anne, which my impression was it was going to. Oh, yeah, I was going to start Anne, but, you know, I think that he needs to hurry up because the <laughs> opioid crisis is at a fever pitch right mm. now. This is prime time for yeah. Liquid Sky 2, not to make light of a horrible, horrible situation. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends that are thankfully clean now from that shit, and it's horrible. Yeah. I think now that we've kind of laid the groundwork, you know, you've got these two movies, it'll be very interesting to talk about. Perfect Strangers. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that because, like you said, that that's like the real amalgamation of these two movies. You're, you're going to see a lot of actors who were in uh, those movies appear here in a very similar setting. So yeah, and that's very not, cool. That's not to say that Perfect Strangers is like this amazing movie that mm-hmm. everyone needs to see because ultimately, like, it's a strange little movie in the plot 
is like so dumb. The plot's so fucking the plot's dumb. funny, I think. I it is pretty funny where it's like, I'm this hitman and this two year old saw me kill somebody. I better date his mom. Yeah. To make sure that he doesn't remember. Like what the, the fuck are plan. you doing? Oh my god. But you know, the, it, there is some interesting stuff in it and Anne's great in it and yeah. you know I really think that Liquid Sky is a movie that you should watch if you are into anything that we talked about like it it can seem like a slog in some ways but I feel like you get some pretty big rewards if yeah. you watch it I would say definitely don't go into this trying to watch Liquid Sky like you're trying to watch like a B movie or some mm-hmm. movie where you're kind of looking for some laughs or anything like that. Uh, it's, you know... it's a, They take it serious. It, it's it's serious. It is an artistic movie. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of interesting artistic choices. There's some things we laugh at, yeah. notably shrimp, lots of shrimp <laughs> jokes. But no, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. This is, That's a, why this is an, art, this an art house movie. It's an art house movie. It's worth watching for its artistic merit. You know, I can't really think of something where usually I say, like, if you like this movie, you might like this movie, because it really is its own movie. Yeah. You know, the closest I can come to is this whole idea of this trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this one probably is the biggest outlier of the of those I three movies. I would say so, yeah. It's the biggest outlier. They do belong together. They do belong together. That's the only thing I can think of. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, like you said, it, it's a very unique movie. Absolutely. Like, I do think that, you know, if you want to watch it with something, like Perfect Strangers is good to watch with it. Smithereens is good to watch with it. Yeah. Um, I'd say, again, Desperately Seeking Susan, mm-hmm. which Anne is in. That's true. So, yeah, that was Liquid Sky. This episode is really, really fucking <laughs> long. I don't know where we went wrong. What did we do? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think like so many things with Liquid Sky for us, you know, we, again, we initially didn't like this movie. We could not stop talking about it. And oh, yeah. once again, even after several years of you and I talking about this movie, mm-hmm. we still have a lot to say about it. It sticks in your head. Yeah. Once you see it, you don't forget it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just really, really cool. I recommend watching it. Um, you know, the Vinegar Syndrome release has a where are they now kind of documentary in it. And I really recommend watching it because in it, you know, Anne has, you know, her hair has gone gray. She has really long hair. But at the end, she decides to get her hair done like she had when she was Margaret in the movie. And you go from seeing like this, like older woman in it. And as you're watching it, like her get her hair cut, you're like, oh my God. Yeah. That's her. Yeah. Initially, you're just like, oh man, I hardly recognize you. And then she gets her hair cut. Just like, oh, there, there we go. She That's looks, it. she looks exactly the same, <laughs> and it, it's incredible. Yeah. But yeah, Liquid Sky is fucking awesome. I love it. It's it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. But if yep. it could potentially be your perfect movie, yeah. so check it out if you're interested. Get yourself a nice shrimp dinner, settle in, and enjoy it. Yeah. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for hanging on. Sorry this took so long. Join me next time. As I've said several times, I'll be covering Perfect Strangers, the Larry Cohen movie. Connor, thank you for joining me. That's been my pleasure. All right. Take care, guys. See ya. Thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, 
ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul. Cool.